you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. Chris Voss here from the ChrisVossShow.com. The Chris Voss Show. .com. Hey, we're coming here with another great podcast. Oh, my God. We certainly appreciate you guys tuning in and being with us today. We have the most brilliant authors ever known to man. I'm not sure if there's another species out there like aliens, but these are the most brilliant authors known to at least man. So we just will set the bar there. Um, and we have one today that's going to blow your freaking mind. But before we get to her, uh, be sure to see the video version of this. Go to youtube.com forward slash Chris Foss. Hit that bell notification button so you get all the notifications of everything that we do. And also, you can refer the show to your friends, neighbors, relatives. You can go to thecvpn.com, the Chris Foss Podcast Network.com. You subscribe to all nine podcasts. You'll probably hear this uh, podcast uh, copied to. Uh, three or four of our different podcasts that are out there. Uh, and also, you can order all the books that you're going to find, all the great authors we've had on the Chris Foss Show, amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Chris Foss. You'll see all the books there. You can just click the ones you like. Just order them all. Hell with it. I mean, that's what credit cards are for, really. Anyway, uh, the uh, most amazing, brilliant author that we have today is Catherine Stewart. She's the author of The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. She is the... Uh, she takes and works uh, in the New York Times op-ed department, NBC, Washington Post, the New Republic, and many others. Uh, how are you doing, Catherine? Doing great. Thanks so much for having me today. Awesome sauce. Welcome to the show. And uh, give us your .com so people can find you on the interwebs, uh, check out your websites, and order your book. Sure. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Kath S. Stewart. There are two S's there. Or you can check out my website, uh, uh, me. or you can uh, look at my uh, Amazon page. Uh, my book is The Power of Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism. And we've been having a discussion about religious nationalism, Christian nationalism. Uh, a lot of it, uh, you know, it seemed to start it out. I, mean, I don't know if it's not his fault, but, you know, we had Eddie Claude Jr. on. We talked about uh, Baldwin, James Baldwin, a lot of different things. And uh, that's when I really started delving into uh, the separation of black and white churches, finding out about this stuff. I mean, I, I started learning about all these things that I didn't know about. And it's evolved in some great different authors that we've had on. And uh, you've got some great data on that, how that works. What motivated you to write this book? Well, I started uh, down this path when I was uh, living in Santa Barbara, California in 2009 with um, my husband and uh, my, our two kids. We had a baby boy and a girl who was in the, uh, first grade. And um, something called a Good News Club came to our daughter's public elementary school. You know, at first I didn't think anything of it. Uh, this is a, an, a group that advertises itself as Bible study from a non-denominational standpoint. Look, I was really naive. Um, I thought non-denominational meant non-sectarian. I, I, and I think you can teach about the Bible, even in public schools, from a truly non-sectarian standpoint, like it's literature or mythology or history or things like that. Um, 
And then, um, you know, this was not a, I wasn't thinking about culture wars. I mean, this is Southern California. You know, the culture war there is like, do you drink Pinot Grigio or do you drink Syrah? Do you do stand-up paddleboarding or do you surf? I mean, this is sort of not a part of the world known for its culture wars. But then I started hearing stories from other parents in town whose kids were attending good news clubs. And I started to hear about how the kids attending these clubs were targeting their um, peers at school for what I could only describe as bullying and bigotry. Um, they would figure out who the kid in their class was who either wasn't a Christian or wasn't the right kind of Christian and tell them they were going to go to hell without Jesus. And um, one of the girls who was attending a good news club um, said to another girl who didn't happen to be uh, religious, she said to her, I know it's true. I know you're going to go to hell without Jesus. Um, and I know it must be true because they taught it to me in school and they don't teach things in school that aren't true. And that really opened my eyes. It kind of gets to the heart of the problem with these good news clubs. Public schools have a kind of cloak of authority in the minds of little kids. And if something's happening in their school, they think it's what the school wants them to believe. So this kind of um, really struck me. It sort of um, called into question everything I thought I knew about the separation of church and state. I realized that there were thousands of these Good News Club operating in public elementary schools across the country, and they were using their position inside the schools to um, confuse in the minds of little kids the, author the authority of the public school and the government with their particular religious viewpoint. So at first I thought this was like wildly inappropriate in a diverse public school setting, but I also thought that it was a relic of the American past. And it turns out I was really wrong about that. The more I learned about these clubs and what they represented and the movement behind them, the more I saw that the, you know, like the good news clubs were one part of a larger attack on um, public education as a whole. And then that was just part of a much larger uh, attack on um, America as a modern constitutional democracy. Wow. Yeah, I'm looking at their website right now. These guys are everywhere internationally. They're in nearly 100 countries worldwide. Yeah, and they have thousands of good news clubs in public elementary schools. Now, mind you, elementary schools, we're talking little kids here. We're talking like 5 to 12 maybe. You know, kids at that age can't make a distinction between activity that's happening in their school and one that's sponsored by the school. They think what's happening in their school that's what their school wants them to believe. And the Good News Club leaders know that. And that's why they want to be in public schools as opposed to churches or private homes or even public parks or anywhere else that we're all free to practice our faith, if any. This is insidious. by <laughs> like uh, just insane. Um, I'm, I'm looking through the website and it, it seems like a, you know, Good News Club. It's <laughs> really innocuous. But, you know, here, there's a, a fellow who did a sort of independent study of the five-year curriculum that's taught in every Good News Club from coast to coast. And he found thousands of references. This is a few years old, his study, but he found thousands of references to, um, you know, being separated from God forever, from hell. Um, one lesson plan had some of the word obey 40 times in that one lesson plan. Wow. And only just a handful of references to the golden rule or the royal law, which is loving your neighbor as yourself. So it's a very particular interpretation of the Christian faith. It's a deeply fundamentalist. Sounds like a little bit of programming too and, and subconscious programming. Uh, I'm looking at the pop-up. It says it's got a little picture of a kid and question marks and goes, 
Why do bad things happen in the world? Why did God allow this to happen? Oh, what a hellish in, in, <laughs> insinuation, uh, presupposition, I suppose. Um, and, and you can learn more and probably get this. But in fact, book. You, know, we, you know, we shouldn't be turning in a diverse public school environment. We really be, don't need to be sort of igniting these needless religious battles. I mean, we yeah. can have our religion if we like, but um, it, when one particular religious group tries to commandeer the public resource, the public school that's supposed to be common to all, you know, it's, it's bad for four reasons. And it's bad yeah. for the same, and I'll tell you why it's bad, okay? Is that okay? Yeah. <laughs> well, it's bad for kids because it confuses kids into thinking that the authority of the, um, the public school is bound up in, in the religion of the club. And it won't turn every kid into a, an evangelical Christian, a conservative evangelical Christian. But what it will do is teach them that there's a so-called right religion in society, one that's in their public school, and then wrong religions, which is everyone else, which is, frankly, the majority of our country. Number two, it's really bad for communities because if, you know, public schools are to be effective in diverse communities, they have to be welcoming to all families and not make families feel um, disenfranchised um, or what they'll withdraw their support from the public schools. And, you know, it's, it's bad for schools themselves because when these, you know, needless religious wars break out in the public school playgrounds, families start to withdraw their support from the school. I found that in my reporting over and over and over. And, um, and then they stop donating their money. They stop, you know, volunteering. And public schools kind of need that uh, so support from uh, families and communities. And number four, you know, it's really bad for our democracy. Oh, yeah. also bad for schools because, you know, principals shouldn't be dealing with this religious stuff. They should just be focused on all the stuff they have to focus on, like budgets and teaching. And, and you know, erosion of separation church and state is, is really um, damaging to all of us. This is a principle that has, it's not just for atheists, it's a principle that's served our society so well over time, even as other societies have been torn apart by a religious conflict. Yeah, most, most, uh, most governments that fall to fascism, they, they use religion to do it. And we may be seeing that here. We'll talk about it some more as we go yeah. along. Um, but certainly like Hitler, uh, Stalin used religion uh, and they courted the the religious churches to give them enough power. And then once they'd siloed enough and they could turn on them, then they did. Uh, which I, which I, you know, we've talked about a lot recently with some of our authors, um, it, it, what I feel is going to happen, but we'll talk some more about that. About So, and, and you know, the, the interesting thing is if I call up a school and I go, Hey man, I have a product. I have this company. I want to sell some crap and recruit some people. Uh, can I come over there and sell, you know, I don't know whatever I'm selling widgets. Uh, they'll be like, Hey man, no, we don't, you're not allowed to raise money and, you know, make money off this. But somehow there's this insidious thing with religion where it's like, we're, we're in here and, and uh, we're just recruiting for more money that we can make and power and stuff. So what happened then? What happened, you know, after you started identifying this and re recognizing what was going on, what happened next? Well, I researched the, the movement behind these good news clubs. I researched the sort of history of, sort of legal activism that had allowed them to enter the public schools in large numbers. And the more I researched and wrote about this topic, I, I published a book 
in 2012 about the religious rights longstanding hostility to public education. This is not a new thing. This is something that dates back actually from the um, uh, pro-slavery era and the and emancipation when pro-slavery theologians did, were very hostile to the idea of public education and pluralism. And they didn't want uh, white people to have to pay taxes to support um, black children, uh, their education. And they also didn't want, and, and these theologians also um, insisted on, like, like the Good News Club, like many of the religious right uh, leaders and uh, leading uh, groups today, insisting on biblical literalism um, the idea of hierarchies as rooted in the Bible, you know, um, obedience is like, you know, a, a must for them. And it's like a very sort of reactionary understanding of the Christian faith, um, which does not describe all of the Christian faith. I actually think most American Christians reject the politics of conquest and division that this movement represents. But I started to kind of see the ties between this movement and other forms of religious nationalism around the world. And one thing that they all have in common, apart from um, uh, their hostility to democracy, is an alliance with a kind of reactionary religion. I mean, Americans have long told ourselves a story about our exceptionalism. We think, you know, fascism can't happen here. Um, autocracy can't happen here. But in fact, there is a religious nationalist movement within America. And when I I started to sort of understand the components of that. It's, um, I wouldn't say it's not so much a leader-driven movement, even though there are leaders, as much as a movement drawn by all of these sort of different components of like a machinery. There's, you know, um, for-profit and non-profit organizations, um, legal advocacy groups that I think to a largely underappreciated degree are um, providing a lot of the strategic direction, um, data initiatives, right-wing policy group, something like Focus on the Family and um, Family Research Council um, uh, uh, networks that are sort of like the Council for National Policy and, and to some degree the family that sort of serve to help organize leadership. There's just a lot of components to this um, machine. Um, the religious right has invested in all of the tools of modern you know, political campaigns like data, media, and messaging. And so, you know, as, as I kept doing my investigative research over the past 10 years, I, I attended strategy meetings. I attended uh, right-wing gatherings. Um, uh, I met with a lot of different right-wing uh, lead, uh, leaders of the movement, I would say. Uh, some who knew that, you know, and I was an opposition journalist and invited me to events anyway. Um, spent a lot of time reading what they write, listening to what they have to say. And so the power worshippers is really an effort to sort of get inside that machinery and sort of um, expose it from the inside. Wow. Wow. And, and so you, you started going to these events and you're seeing how these things worked. And one thing that, that came out of the conversations that I had with some of the great authors that we talked about earlier was I started watching right wing, I think it's called right wing, right, <laughs> right wing watch. Oh, yeah. Org. And I started seeing these these pastors that are, I guess, have a huge effect, and they are spouting this rhetoric of insanity, like, you know, Biden's going to destroy God, and <laughs> there will be no churches if Biden's elect. You know, like, Biden's just going to be like, yeah, remember how I let churches go those eight years under Obama? Yeah, under me, we're just going to raise all of them off the, and everyone's going to go into 
I don't know, those Chinese uh, uh, concentration camps with the Uyghurs. Yeah, we're going to do that with all the Christians. Yeah, sure, that's going to happen. Oh, it's, it, the, the rhetoric is really different. Like, you know, during modern, uh, during uh, political campaigns, both political parties often appeal to religion and God and uh, uh, sometimes in order to unite the country. But, you know, this, um, the, the rhetoric on display uh, is really changed uh, on the on the Republican side. I mean, when I watched the RNC, um, it, it was downright delusional and paranoid. Uh, Donald Trump, Trump Jr. said, you know, people of faith are under attack and you're not allowed to go to church. Uh, Jim Jordan repeated the lie. He said, Democrats won't let you go to church. Um, uh, I mean, uh, you know, Trump has actually put it this way himself. He said, uh, you know, no religion, do anything, hurt the Bible, hurt God. You know, he, meaning uh, Biden is against God. Meanwhile, you know, 600 Catholic leaders have just come out in support of um, endorse, endorsing Biden. Um, 350 other faith leaders have endorsed Biden. But it doesn't really matter. It's like, you know, this is what all good fascists do. Trump and his associates assert that anyone who is not a member of their tribe is out there ransacking everything that is holy and good. And they're casting this as a choice between, as Donald Trump Jr. said, church work and school versus, you know, looting, uh, rioting and vandalism. Like it's one or the other. And, you know, it's amazing. People often accuse the left of playing identity politics. I think the right plays it harder. It, you know, it's you're in or you're out. You're with us or you're, you're against us. You're, you're either on our team or you're not. And, you know, this is the way um, religious nationalism uh, ends up manipulating large sub you know segment of the public is through these types of identity politics so like when you're talking with the rank and file like when you're talking about you're talking about a wide a like really large number of people who have many different interests and ideas and so you know when they're persuaded to vote um to ban abortion or when they say america's found as a christian nation they're not really arguing for major changes in the way our government is run they're really kind of making a statement more about their identity and something they value in themselves. But, you know, I think it's really helpful in understanding this movement to focus on the distinction between the rank and file, those large mass of people, some of whom, you know, very well-meaning and, you know, they just want to sort of, they say they want to preserve the American family, whatever. Um, and, and the leadership of the movement that actually is not just talking about banning abortion or these sort of, um, culture war issues. In a way, those are just the shiny baubles that they dangle in front of the electorate to get them vote a certain way. I mean, you know, when, when they're in their forums that they share, or when they're talking to the plutocratic funders of the movement, um, there are a number of like very, very well-resourced funders in the movement. And uh, when they're at their strategy meetings, it's not just about abortion. It's uh, a lot of it's about money. A lot about the money favors no taxes or low taxes for the rich, about mm -hmm. how the Bible favors uh, minimal regulation of uh, businesses, uh, minimal regulation of the environment, mm -hmm. um, and about how, um, you know, they don't want the government to fund any social services. They want to hollow out the social, you know, there's a hollowing out of the social safety net, but they want the government to fund faith organizations, their churches and their religious organizations so that those, so that some of that money can then funnel down. So it's like, this is their whole thing about privatizing um, public education. They don't think the government should be in the business of educating, but they want the government to fund church schools so that they can have all this 
lovely taxpayer money to, um, you know, uh, deliver, um, you know, uh, religious education along with other kinds of education. You know, that was the thing that I was doing my research on you and blew my mind because I didn't see Betsy DeVos coming until I heard you say it. I mean, I saw, I, I always thought Betsy DeVos, and I knew she was kind of right-wingy, um, but I always thought she was just doing this for money and that she was trying to disable and destroy public education so that she could do vouchers. In fact, they they really made a push for it during the coronavirus thing. They're like, well, we need to do, you know, and she she was going on TV going, well, public or private schools, you know, have better, healthier places. Uh, um, so we I should fear. do vouchers. So we, <laughs> we'll send them there. <laughs> and, uh, um, but I didn't know that her agenda, and you talked about this really well, their agenda is to infiltrate the schools basically turn us into Christian schools, almost like a, like everything you talked about in the book and stuff really sounds like ISIS to me, man. Like it's just another name, but it's that same, we take over the government, we take over the schools, we brainwash everybody, and we kill the non-believers. <laughs> Definitely not talking about killing non-believers. Uh, not yet. There's a disenfranchisement. I mean, I think yeah. that for, you know, the extreme members of the movement, I mean, let's back up for one second. You know, a lot of people describe this as an evangelical movement. It's not quite right. The movement does include a lot of evangelicals, but it excludes a lot of evangelicals too. We've got to, you know, remember four out of five white evangelicals voted for Trump. One in five did not. Most evangelicals of color did not. And it includes representatives of both, um, you know, variety of both Protestant and non-Protestant religions. So like hyper-conservative Catholics, form a large cohort, uh, some co- uh, a cohort. Um, the movement also draws on a segment of the charismatic and Pentecostal uh, forms of faith, which are sort of on the rise. So we, we were talking about Betsy DeVos and, oh, um, how did I get off on this tangent? <laughs> um, I'm not sure, but it, it sounded great. Um, oh. Betsy DeVos. Uh... Oh, oh, yeah. So what they want to do for public schools is um, – Yeah, so she stands at the intersection of these two family fortunes that helped build some of the key policy organizations of the religious right, um, uh, such as uh, Focus on the Family, and um, uh, members of her extended family contributed heavily to the Alliance Defending Freedom as well, um, which is one of the major legal advocacy groups. And she and her husband couched their sort of efforts um, uh, some years ago as a means of advancing uh, God's kingdom. They were actually you know, at a, a gathering, I think, I, I don't remember the year exactly when they said that, but they, you know, they were, they were very involved in voucher activism at that time. And, and, and they've had, she sort of comes from a tradition that does have a longstanding hostility to public education. Okay. Oh, here's a really great one. And since we've got video here, I've just got these books in front of me. So this dude, his name is D. James Kennedy. He wrote, um, this is a pamphlet that was made out of a, a, uh, a sermon he gave called A Godly Education. D. James Kennedy was one of these very powerful sort of um, uh, radio pastors where they get on the radio and, you know, radio preachers and say stuff. So he's writing about public education here. And the family of Betsy DeVos gave at least $5.5 million to his ministry. Wow. And here's what he said about public education. He writes... The anti-Christian, anti-God bias, the censorship of all things Christian, the infusion of an atheistic, amoral, evolutionary, socialistic, one-world, anti-American system of education in our public schools has indeed become such 
that if it had been done by an enemy, it would have been considered an act of God. This is what he said. His family, he was supported by um, Betsy DeVos's family. So there's this longstanding hostility to public education um, drawing initially, of course, from uh, the time uh, that sort of um, pro-slavery era, pro-slavery theologians who posed it. Um, uh, the through, there's a kind of through line into the um, uh, era of civil rights when um, uh, a lot of folks like uh, Bob Jones uh, Jr. Uh, didn't want public, uh, Bob Jones, is the, um, sorry, the pastor, didn't want uh, integrated schools and argued against them. And, uh, you know, going through here uh, to G. James Kennedy, who wrote this in 1986. And then members of the Trump administration, even Trump today, has, um, has uh, referred to public schools as government schools. You know, yeah. Government yeah. and evil. But the real problem with public education is that that's pluralistic. Look, this is the movement this, that is against equality and it is against pluralism. It sort of rejects the those values that have held our our country which is an you know irreducibly pluralistic together it's basically an anti-democratic ideology um that that was just astounding like i did not even connect betsy devos or the religious taking over the religious schools destroying public schools. i thought that was just all for money and when you said that on a research i was like Oh my God! I see the bigger picture now. And uh, you talked about how the the issues with them is you know they're anti science, uh, and you know I mean clearly they have issues because they believe that what the Earth was created four thousand years ago, and the problem with schools is they teach you know the dinosaurs and, well, and everything it's, it's else. Not just you know it's not just about evolution. Really, it's about critical thinking, mm. which I think perhaps they're afraid that if kids start thinking critically they might start to question some of the sort of orthodoxies and hierarchies that they hand down somehow, you know, uh, ordained by God. And I think that that sort of, um, you know, public schools also teach kids how to get along with children who are different, children of different backgrounds and faiths. And that's something that I think is sort of hostile to a movement that is trying to sort of um, get everyone to conform. Subjugation, like you mentioned in that one book, there was over there was several example a uh, ton of examples of the word obey this is all very like nlp sort of unconscious programming control manipulation you know i i grew up in a cult here in utah and i didn't believe any like right away i was like there's something wrong with this i got better things to do on sunday um and but right away you know i'd, I'd ask questions and i'd put logical test to it and i'd be like you know why does this doesn't make sense to that those two there's no line there and they'd be like just shut up and have some faith <laughs> she says i gotta believe and i'm like uh no i don't think so man i just i want to know where that line goes that and then you know then they backhand you uh but uh so I, that's what i see a lot of it in there is is control but what was what was amazing is what you've got in the book is how insidious this goes and how internationally this goes and how it has ties to extraordinary uh like with russia and with uh uh, fascism and authoritarianism and it, it's almost like this is being used as a tool to destroy uh, democracies well democracy you know when I was researching power worshippers I went to Italy to uh, a group um, a conference called the World Congress of Families they hold this con um, typically every year every couple of years in a different location and it brings together leaders of what they call the so-called global um, 
a conservative movement, but really they very explicitly declared war on liberal democracy. And um, some of the speakers stood up and said, you know, please make, you know, make pol- a liberal politicians fear you. They really are against sort of values of pluralism and equality. And, but this is what, um, the, you know, when, when these sort of authoritarian reader, leaders like Putin in Russia or Erdogan in Turkey or Duda now in, in Poland, um, or, or, or bond in Hungary, when they bind themselves tightly to religious hyper-conservative leaders in their countries in order to consolidate an authoritarian form of political power, we rightly recognize this as a form of religious nationalism and clearing the way for um, you know, more authoritarian power. And, and we're seeing this today with Trump and his alliances with, or with hyper-conservative religious leaders. This is what scares the crap out of me, especially with the discussions with you folks that are writing these books about identifying what's going on uh, inside religion. And, and unfortunately, I'm just getting this way too late. Um, but uh, what is scary to me is, is like you mentioned, the fall of Erdogan, uh, Hungary, everything else, Poland, they say will fall next. Uh, and um, uh, it, 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 this is the rise of fascism. We are uh, we are experiencing a coup, if you will. We are um, the Trump like the law and the Constitution draw certain bright red lines, and yeah. and his cronies just sort of hop all over them. I really do think we are on an all hands on deck moment because that sort of disregard for the law, yeah. that blatant disregard for the law, is. Um, it clears the way for, 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 you know, sets the groundwork for dictatorship. Now, we're not quite there yet. And I think it's also really important to remember that this is not a majority of the population. This movement represents a minority. They just punch above their political weight because they're so disproportionately organized and very networked, and they really get out the vote. So, you know, to, to get a handle on the numbers, I... I, you can look at the work of somebody like uh, George Barna. He's an evangelical pollster who's very, you know, embedded in this movement. And he estimates that the most sort of devoted religious right voters, a group he calls SAGECONS, it's an acronym for something like Spiritually Active Governance, Governance Engaged Conservatives. He says they're only 10% of the, of the uh, country. But in the last election, 2016, 91% turned out to vote and 93% of those voted for Trump. And they're not just voting. They're the ones who are like knocking on doors and making phone calls. And then you had all these right-wing policy groups like, you know, uh, Ralph Reed is another sort of movement leader. He has a group called the Faith and uh, Freedom Coalition. He's promised to vote. I know they always use like amazing names. Yeah, Um, I know those guys. And American flags. (laughs) It's all red, white, and blue and bright, shining lights. And, um, you know, he's promised to devote $40 million to get out the vote efforts in this election cycle. But there's just, and that's just one organization out of many. You know, I continue now to go to these events online because COVID. And um, I went to these um, anti-abortion, a couple of anti-abortion strategy meetings. And they're talking about the need to get out the vote. They said, you know, we've got to create single issue voters. Because if you can get people to vote to save the babies as they see it, you can get them to ignore the economic policy stuff that they're endorsing that makes it so much harder for families to succeed, right? Yeah. Far-right libertarian economic policies that are actually hollowing out the middle class, hollowing out the social safety net. And yet if you get people to vote to ban abortion, they're going to end up you know, voting in politicians who are 
basically intensifying economic inequality. But so they did talk about, you know, we get to create single issue voters. And they said there is no victory without unity. This is something the right understands. No victory without unity. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they vote in disproportionate numbers, but the same tools are uh, applicable to all uh, you know, of those, you know, they, they can work for those of us who reject the values of conquest and division that this movement represents. Yeah, this scares the hell out of me. I mean, the, the more I know, the more I just, I'm freaking out. Um, so uh, two things for you. Uh, one thing you talked about was how abortion is, is kind of more like a monomic device uh, of like build the wall. Like, they're not really into it. They're just... That's like the thing that that's the hot button that turns people on and gets them out to motivate. But but this isn't like a big thing for him, especially if, you know, you're Jerry Falwell Jr. and your pool boy knocks your wife up. You're going to need an abortion. Um, <laughs> and so if you want to address that just a little bit. Sure. I mean, I think that, um, you know, abortion was really created um, as a as an issue. Um, I mean, let's remember what happened when abortion was. Um, was uh, ratified. Um, at that time, the Southern Baptist Convention hailed it. Most American Protestant um, Christians at that time supported um, some form of abortion rights. Um, let's not forget that it was Ronald Reagan who signed into law the most liberal abortion law in the country. I think it was 1967. Um, Barry Goldwater, who was a conservative hero, he uh, supported abortion, uh, at least early in his career. And his wife, um, Peggy, okay, this is a great little detail, one of my favorite little factoids, Peggy Goldwater, you know, so it's like uber conservative couple. She co-founded Planned Parenthood in Arizona. Oh, so, seriously? You know, yes. Isn't that I incredible? did not know that. Yes, indeed. So, and it was seen mostly as a Catholic issue at that time, but it didn't divide. Um, abortion at that time did not reliably divide Protestant from Catholic necessarily, although Catholic um, hierarchy was mostly against it, but it didn't reliably uh, uh, divide um, uh, Democrat from Republican. It really wasn't like a voting issue. It was really over time that um, a, a new movement called the New Right, they were sort of looking for an issue that they could use to purify their movement and to get people to vote uh, on their side. They were really unhappy with the Republican Party at that time, which they thought was too soft on communism, and um, they were sort of insufficiently sort of uh, reactionary. So they, there's a scene where they kind of went down, and uh, Randall Balmer, who's this fantastic um, academic and sort of was in on um, uh, some of these uh, gatherings, he, um, he, he describes this. Um, it, there's there's a, an incident where they sort of had a meeting, strategy meeting, and they're going down the list of issues that might serve to unite their new movement and sort of reunite what they call a new right. And the issue that really bothered them was the fact that these um, segregated religious schools, which were actively practicing segregation, the IRS was starting to look at them and say, well, why are we giving you a tax exemption for segregation? And um, Bob Jones uh, uh, University was a target of, of this kind of inquiry. And this was really offensive to them. They're like, how dare they look at our segregated schools and, and deny us our tax privileges? So, um, but they knew that like, it wasn't really going to be a reliable issue. Like, you know, let's, you know, defend the tax on segregation wasn't going to, it was just so ugly. Right. Yeah. So they like went down a whole number of other issues like school prayer and the women's movement and stuff like that. 
But it wasn't until they got to abortion, it was almost like a light bulb went off. And they're like, huh, that could work. So over time, pro-choice voices were purged for the Republican Party. And there were many. I mean, let's remember Betty Ford hailed Roe v. Wade as a great, great decision. You know, but over time, those pro-choice voices and even pro-choice um, groups, like pro-choice Republican groups, uh, at that time, like a number of exi- a number existed, and they um, and they were sort of purged from the Republican Party until what happened is it's almost like they 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 boiled all of politics to religion and all of religion to the issue of abortion. We have almost like a new religion of pro-life these days. And what matters in this movement is not theological distinctions. I guess this goes back to what I was talking about, evangelicals and Catholics and others. It's, it, it's not so much a theological distinction that unites the movement. It's really sort of positions on a few yes or no culture war issues. If you can get people to, to vote on you know, abortion, their idea of religious liberty, which is the rights of people with certain correct beliefs to discriminate against others, sort of their idea of religious liberty, and um, you know LGBT issues, you know anti-LGBT stuff, then you can you can capture their vote. So like when movement leaders are talking to pastors about how they should communicate to their congregants in order, like you know the conservative leading pastors. Um, the issues they should communicate to their congregants in order to turn out the vote. It's all abortion all the time. You know, it's like abortion. In fact, I have a friend who's a a pastor in uh, South Carolina who just got this um, sample voter guide from the Faith and Freedom Coalition, which I mentioned (laughs) earlier. It's Ralph Reed's um, organization. And it sort of shows like, you know, Jane Doe, Democrat versus John Smith, Republican, and abortion on demand, she votes yes, he votes no. Taxpayer funding of abortion, she votes yes, he votes no, right? So it's sort of like, I mean, these kinds of voter guides that are handed out wow. by, um, you know, the faith. And, and this is a sample, and they're saying, we're going to give you a sample, and then we're going to give you the real ones, you know, yeah. Biden versus Trump. And it's going to have these kinds of questions, you know, taxpayer funding of abortion, abortion on demand. And these types of um, voter guides that they hand out, um, in, in huge quantities, they leave absolutely no um, question as to which candidate the person receiving the voter guide is supposed to vote for in order yeah. if they're going to vote their so-called biblical values. That's crazy. Now, with the schools, um, with the schools, the, I, one of the things I wanted to hop back to, if I can just do a quick jump back, uh, I think the other reason they want to control the schools is they want to stop LGBTQ and start program, you know, like programming, you know, uh, boy and girls, I guess, technically and marriage is boy and girl and LGBTQ is bad. I, I imagine that's one of their other agendas. Yeah. You know, it's really funny. I go every year to the, um, values voters summit in Washington, DC, which is the big gathering of some of the leading activists. They bring in their sympathetic politicians and a couple of years ago, I was at the Values Voter Summer. Every single person who got up on that podium said, we've got to talk about transgender bathrooms. Now, over and over and over, we've got to talk about transgender bathrooms. And what they're doing is finding another one of those shiny bobble issues that they yeah. can use to turn people out to vote, you know? And um, again, it's just like these culture war issues are, are used to distract people from the larger agenda of the movement, which is all about power and money. Yeah, I mean, the, the religious right has allied for, for a very long time with a sort of libertarian 
hyper-conservative economic wing of the Republican Party. So they're going out there and saying, we're defending the American family, and yet the politicians that they're allied with are, are, are supporting economic policies that are hollowing out the middle class, um, making it harder for American families to succeed. Yeah, I mean, the Southern Poverty Law Center identifies World Congress of Families as an extremist group, and part of it is their attack on LGBTQ rights and stuff. And uh, it's just quite extraordinary. Uh, you talked uh, in my research, and I think in the book, uh, there was a, there was groups you were going to where they're really organized, and and a lot of the pastors come to the group. I forget the name of it. I think it's on my uh, browser. Well, there are different pastor organizations and networks. One of them is called Watchmen on the Wall. That's it's, it. Um, tens of thousands of affiliated pastors, um, and I, I went to one of their gatherings in uh, North Carolina. They brought together a number of area pastors. Um, I went with a friend of mine whose uh, church is a member of the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, he happens to take a different view of um, sort of different, uh, has different conclusions about uh, politics and policy necessarily. But here's the thing. A lot of people say, well, if the religious right is, you know, basically turning these sort of conservative churches into, you know, cells of, you know, like cells of a shadow political party, you know, what they do is like to communicate to these pastors the precise issues they need to communicate to their congregants in order to turn them to vote, you know, turn them out to vote, um, including they really sophisticated dad to some people often say, well, why don't progressive churches do that same thing? Our mainline churches. I mean, here's the thing. Most progressive and mainline religious leaders would really rather keep church and state separate. They really take our constitutional principles very seriously. And they understand that, you know, the reason we have a diverse um, and vibrant religious landscape in America is precisely because we have a separation of church and state and sort of the justification for, you know, all of their unique tax privileges and benefits um, is, uh, is that they sort of should keep themselves separate and clear from government. But the, here's, it's like another bright red line that um, movement leaders don't mind sort of jumping over. They, um, you know, in many instances, violating sort of the spirit of, of the law, if, if not the letter, and sometimes even the letter, sometimes the letter is flouted. So I've been, yeah, I've been to these gatherings where they're, you know, telling pastors how they need to get their congregants out to vote, and it's, you know, always the culture war stuff. And, and you talked about how they, how they have a certain way that they, uh, they skirt, you know, the IRS and the federal government, you know, outlook at them where they don't quite preach from the pulpit, but they find, um, they find people within their party. They can monitor who's voting and who they vote for, which I thought was interesting. Oh, oh yeah. Like one pastor I spoke to called at a God given loophole where they're, they're instructed to create these culture impact teams within churches where the preacher doesn't have to say, Oh, you, you got to vote for so-and-so, but what he does, or that's almost always a he, right? Um, is find people, well, within the conservative, um, certainly within the conservative, you know, uh, evangelical and the Catholic denominations, um, they, they, um, they find a team of people who are, you know, with those sort of governance engaged, the sort of people in their congregation who are willing to sort of, you know, be the busybody and say, hey, Mrs. Jones, you know, you've got to vote your biblical values. Let me show you all these resources and how you need to vote your biblical values so that it's not, you know, it's not the... You know, it's like a, think about like a peewee soccer league. Okay. 
it's like you got the kids, you know, like playing together, but the whole thing wouldn't happen without the adults on the sidelines, like giving them the tools, funding the whole thing, you know, telling the kids what to do, telling them the rules, you know, setting the whole game in motion. So I talked to a pastor uh, about one of these initiatives, these sort of culture impact team type initiatives where they're getting congregants to become like, you know, tell other people how they should vote in the congregation. He said, he said it, it threads a separation. He said, it's a God given loophole. He said it threads a separation of church and state loophole. I thought that was pretty interesting. And, and it's highly organized. I mean, it's, you, they give you, you talked about how they give them these manuals. Uh, it's, it's, I it's, have a manual right here. I'm just going to hold it up. Holy you know God, really right, yeah. And you see this culture impact team resource manual, how to establish and ministry at your church. I mean, a church is already ministry, right? But yeah. it's all about turning out the vote for so-called biblical values. And it's not simple. Like there are, I don't know, well, yeah, like that thing is... of tabbed material. See, look, it leaves no room for like failure, really. And wow. um, it covers every single aspect of establishing these teams. And then the data um, tools are really powerful. I mean, they've got, um, for the, um, in, in my book, The Power Worshippers, I wrote about an initiative called United in Purpose that is now, I think, um, reformed uh, somewhat. Um, mm-hmm. But at the time they were offering, um, and they still have like the data, you know, the, the head of the organization said, we have 200 million voter, uh, vo- data, voter files in our database. We know it makes somebody turn out to vote one way, and we know it makes them not vote at all, basically stay home. And then they use these, um, you know, uh, strategies to target individual voters with um, very strategic messages about, mm-hmm. you know, and, and w- one of the things that they do is assign people points if they ever signed, you know, uh, an anti-abortion list or an anti-gay marriage list, or even if they are a fan of NASCAR or fishing, they know how to get that data. Maybe it's aggregated yeah. Facebook or whatever, and they assign people and if they, are, you know, attend a church and, and then they, they assign people points. And if a person meets 600 points, they target that as an individual to go after, to get them to, to vote, to turn out that vote. Did they incorporate that data into, you know, Kushner used a lot of, uh, you know, Facebook ads and targeting. Do they incorporate that data into like Facebook ads and stuff like that? Well, you know, I'm, I'm not sure about that um, particularly, but, it, you know, it's important to know that all political, modern, you know, modern political campaigns use data to turn out the vote. But the difference is that this initiative was relying, like, was operating largely through religious organizations or in large part through religious organizations, um, which are exempt from taxes and <laughs> scrutiny. So there's a difference between, you know, there is a difference between, you know, uh, operating through, um, you know, other means. That's what makes me so angry. It's like, wait, you get to be tax free. And then I just saw the money was paid out to them in PPEs. And I'm like, wait, oh, why God. are you getting PPE money when, and that was to pay off of, of substantial proportions. Um, one of the things that really scares me about this whole thing is that these people do not give a damn about the constitution. They believe that this they will turn this into a God's country. And I'm not being a hyperbolic because the more I talk to folks like you that are writing these brilliant books, the more I realize what we're in. And this is a cue to take over America, trash the Constitution, the Bible will become the new Constitution. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. Um, and 
and everything will go with, you know, 10 commandments will be on every courthouse, you know, uh, I don't know if you'll imprison and behead LBGTQ, but I don't know. I don't ISIS probably didn't start out that way, but I don't know. I don't trust. I All I see, like when I see the trucks running down the road, I go, those sure look like ISIS type trucks with the flag, you know? Um, and so this is my biggest fear. And then I know how this story ends because I've studied Hitler, Stalin, everybody else who, who courted the, the thing. All, all Trump needs is to get those votes to get in office second term. Every president's a lame duck president. And what he's going to do is he's going to seize power and he's going to silo. He's going to turn on the Christians too. He's going to screw them as well. Cause they're going to be like, we want to share some power with you. And he's going to be like, fuck you guys. And that's what Hitler did. That's what every one of them did. That's what this is moving to. And in fact, I told people when you saw up on the dais, all of the, the family of him, right? That's the new royal family. That's the new monarchy royal family of freaking America right there. That's what he just put in front of you. You know, it's uh, funny that the Bob, uh, no, it was Michael Cohen. I think he said something like, you know, he, he wrote, you know, Trump is saying, like, can you believe that these people believe this crazy stuff? But, you know, it makes me think about that. Isn't Bob Seeger song like, you know, he uses them, they use him, and neither one cared. I mean, really, yeah. they're getting what they want because a lot of their advocacy, a, a lot of what they want runs through judges. Um, and, like, I've been to all these strategy meetings where leadership will stand up and say, this election is about judges, judges, judges. So let's just look at that piece. A couple of days ago, I checked. At that moment, Trump had a, um, four, uh, 204 uh, of his uh, nominees had been uh, confirmed. That's nearly 25% of the judiciary. It's like yeah. a huge number. Um, and I think that, you know, they're, you know, some of them are comparing him to a biblical leader, like a, a, like a king, like a King David or King Cyrus, an imperfect leader through whom God is enacting his will. It's also this kind of, you know, the thing about kings is they don't have to obey the rules, do they? They are the law unto themselves. Yeah. And they're not the kings of democracies. You know. Well, they, yeah, they don't care. He's the angel of destruction against the sinners, and you know, well, it's us, angel of destruction against democracy itself. Actually, yeah. is it and is. we're the and we're the you know, and they think he's going to hand them the golden chalet or chalet or when he's done, and he's not. Like they don't even see. It I think coming. he needs them. He needs them because that's the only way that he is going to um, you know maintain any um, uh, cohort of you know, voters behind him, they're spending so much money to get him yeah. elected. They stand by him. There's nothing he can do um, that will, um, you know, earn their criticism. Yeah. So. But once he, once he gets into office again, once he's reelected, he's going to continue to silo power, destroy the government, take pieces apart. He's going to continue to keep operating. And eventually you'll turn on them. Um, well, it's definitely an all hands on deck moment. It really is. And I'm scared to hell because there's that silent, there's that silent, uh, uh, sub that came in 2016 and now i don't know it's it's hard to call it because now people are more overt in supporting trump and so there's either that silent sub still there or now they they're above the water uh one thing that was that really blew my mind and i was cutting my pants earlier was uh you talked about capital ministries ministries and so i started googling these guys and holy crap i mean I, I didn't even know there were so many insidious members of our government that are involved with these guys and that are promoting this agenda. So, uh, 12, I think it's 12 out of 15 current and former members of Trump's cabinet um, 
have participated in uh, Capital Ministries. Um, he, he's a, he's a, a pastor who targets political leaders at the highest echelons of power. So he's got, you know, uh, Trump's cabinet. He's got Bible study for that. Um, we're talking folks like, you know, Betsy, uh, Betsy DeVos, Sonny Perdue. Um, oh, I don't have the list in front of me. They're like, yeah. you know, Carson, uh, Pompeo, um, Alex Azar. I mean, 12 out of 15 current and former members have participated. And, and then he's got um, also ministries targeting the Senate and uh, House of, Rep- Represent- uh, House of Rep- Representatives. Um, and he's also international. I mean, he's sort of conducting a kind of shadow diplomacy uh, on behalf of our government around the world. Um, so, yeah, he's an interesting fellow. Very I just realized that on the show, I need like a scream bag, you know, like a bag where you step off and you just scream into a bag. <laughs> I need one of those on the show right now. Uh, it's just, it's just horrifying. And yeah, you open my <laughs> eyes to all this stuff that's going on. I didn't even realize how cities. Um, this there is was... actually a moment for hope. I really do. And I'll tell you why. I'm seeing a lot more political organizing among those of us who defend our democracy than we saw four years ago. I think people, you know, the right has been trained not to vote uh, on, the, on the personality of Trump, uh, although, of course, there are those who, who love him because he sticks it to the limbs. But um, they're like, you know, vote on policy, vote on issues, vote on abortion, vote for judges. And I think people, um, you know, uh, who sort of uh, oppose that are, are, are starting to get it. It's not about what a person might have said in 1992. It's not about some thing they voted for once. It's really, you know, are you voting for somebody who, um, you know, is who going to, uh, uh, you know, appoint a climate denier to run our climate policy? Are you going to vote for somebody who wants to destroy public education to run the government, you know, Department of Education? Are you going to vote in science deniers? Are you going to vote in somebody who's going to appoint justices that have all been like these sort of hyper conservatives that have all been sort of vetted um, and groomed by uh, the Federalist Society or, or judges who actually believe in the rule of law and the Constitution. So, um, you know, I think, I think you know, they, they say there's no victory without unity, and I think people are starting to get it um, on the other side, too. I hope so. I mean, yeah. folks like you that are writing great books and, and others that we've talked about and had on the show um, – I hope that they're going to make some difference. I, I, I fear we might be too late to the party, but I, I think I think we've seen enough. I mean, there's a lot of Trump's really seems to be collapsing. So knock on wood. Um, now, you you talked about Capital Ministries and this guy, I was watching a bunch of his videos uh, from Capital Ministries and he is insidious, man. He knows how to go into state and screw you up if you don't, you know, he knows how to go for control in the throat. And there was another group that uh, I looked up and they, they had a podcast called The Wall Builders. Wall Builders, yeah. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh my God, could you be more overt to what sort of racism you're promoting there? Um, and in one of these groups, I couldn't remember which you talked about how they're very anti LGBTQ. They're very anti women's rights, women's feminism. I mean, they're subjugated to women where, you know, it's all about men. I couldn't remember which of these individuals, or maybe it was another individual that you talked about. Oh, a number of them. I mean, Ralph Bongers, you know, (laughs) he, uh, studied at the feet of a fellow named John MacArthur. You should look him up if you're uh, up for Googling. So John MacArthur's been in the news recently because, um, yeah, he's, you know, one of these, you know, there are 
you know, oppressing the churches by not letting us sing, you know, and crowd in large numbers or something like that. He's got a, a wild. So he started this seminary called the Master's Sem- Seminary. It's in Southern California. This is where Ralph Drollinger uh, studied um, and got his degree. And and um, and the Master's uh, John, uh, John MacArthur wrote this wild. It's a um, it's a uh, it's a sermon, and you can find it online. It's called "The Willful Submission of a Christian Wife," and he instructed you are to rank yourself under your husband. You're wow. rank yourself under your husband. Basically, your job is your husband. And um, I spoke to somebody who had worked at um, the Master Sem- Sir, uh, Seminary for almost 25 years. He was there for 24 years. And he said that, um, he told me that MacArthur, if your wife worked, he'd either fire you or if he liked you, he'd give you a raise so she could quit her job. And there was a really um, famous um, <laughs> uh, German theologian, uh, I'm probably mispronouncing her name, Etta Leiniger, Leiniger, she was like this famous Protestant um, theologian, and she came to campus, and she wasn't allowed to um, actually be on campus. She had to meet students off campus. And he said, this guy ran the library for a while, and he said he was even discouraged from purchasing books by female authors. Now, Drollinger, some of, yeah, some of this kind of submissive stuff, uh, female submission stuff, in his, some of his uh, ser- uh, sermons, you can find them on catmen.org. None of this is hidden. I mean, some people like, you know, say this is a conspiracy. This is not a conspiracy. Conspiracies happen, you know, behind closed doors with unnamed actors. Um, this is happening out in the open. It's, it's not that they're hiding. It's that we are not listening. And is this, this is why they hate me too. They hate cancel culture. Uh, even though I'll embrace it if it's good year tires, I guess. Um, but this is why they hate this stuff is because, um, it's calling out their sexism, and then of course Black Lives Matter calls out their overt racism and their and their demand for power over those folks as well. That's true, but I also think they sort of work that cancel culture thing because it's a way of trying to get sort of look. They specialize in the politics of resentment, and so in some wow. ways it's trying to get certain people who might be resentful but not particularly uh, religious themselves, or certainly w- wouldn't think of themselves as. Um, you know, uh, agreeing with many of the other positions of the, of, the, of the religious right, but they might be like, you know, I'm a big believer in free speech and I think we should have a, a marketplace of ideas and people should be allowed to, you know, say what they want. And I've actually seen some of this, like they'll sort of, um, you know, work that group and talk about, you know, they're canceling this and they're canceling that. And, um, and, and, and they, they're doing it to sort of draw in, you know, that cohort of, of people who actually are on, um, you know, might be progressive in other ways, but also, you know, want to, but, but are, are concerned about, you know, people getting, I don't, you know, they're disinvited, they're free speech suppressed or whatever, but, you know, the right is really good at exploiting, but, you know, they're complaining about cancel culture, but all you have, they, they do it, they, they run it harder. I mean, all yeah. you have, like, listen, look at the silences, you know, and I, I watched the RNC. Did you watch the RNC? I a little bit of it, but I, I, I tried to quit drinking here for a while. Okay, so. all right, well, <laughs> good luck. Um, <laughs> between now and November. Yeah. Uh, after November, maybe. I've taken up heroin <laughs> until November, pretty much. I'm the right. fattest guy on heroin right now, but I'm but like, just going to go with heroin. Wait, so I, I went to this cancel culture thing. So, like, you know, they're, they're going after cancel culture on the left during the RNC. But there were, like, is it vast, like, you know, plains of silence, you know, deserts of silence. 
um, uh, there was not a single word uttered that might possibly offend, you know, anybody who might want to take a more nuanced position on abortion rights or, um, or might want to take a more nuanced position about LGBT equality or, or, or not a single word that would offend the, some of the movement's um, most plutocratic funders who have an absolutely, you know, libertarian uh, economic philosophy. Yeah. So I actually think that, you know, there's no room in, in that movement for deviation. As they say, you know, they, they, it's like a kind of a thought control. No, um, yeah. or, no victory without unity. I was going to go with Adderall and cocaine, but evidently Trump and Don Jr. and his his girlfriend are uh, buying up the market, so I couldn't couldn't find any. That was uh, really something, right? <laughs> it really is, especially when you saw like a gem fall out of his nose the other day uh, when he was speaking, and he noticed it too um, with his little deviated septum. I don't know if you've ever read anything from I think it's Noel Castor who used to be their minders on the set of Watch He's a comedian and. And he uh, he was the one who finally came out and broke the story on the snorting Adderall stuff, um, but yeah, it's it's really interesting to me. Uh, you know, I for me, a lot of this is still a surprise because when I left the cult uh, as a kid, uh, I just pretty much became an atheist. And I'm really cool with people. I don't knock on your door at Saturday morning and go, "Hey, have you heard about nothing? Do you want to hear more about nothing?" Like I I don't do that, right? And, uh, you know, my good Jewish friends, they don't bang on my door. They don't even give a crap. So I, you know, I don't have to, you know, when I hang out with them, they don't give me problems. Um, but yeah, it's, 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 uh, so I haven't been around this Christian thing for a long time. I, I just kind of stay away and they stay away from me and I stay away from them. And so until I start learning about all these things, I'm kind of like, what the hell? Um, oh, that was the other question I had for you. Uh, during the Obama era, he kind of started going after churches, and I think he identified a lot of this, what was going on, and started, I don't know if he really sent the IRS after him, but the you know, there's no, that thing I know. Where you know, it's really interesting. They had, I think it was 2006. I have it in my book. I, I, I don't want to take the time to look up the exact date. But a Republican-led committee, um, uh, Charles Grassley, Republican, <laughs> led this committee. They started looking at some of these preachers like Paula White or um, – Creflo Dollar or, you know, a whole bunch of them. There are like six or eight um, pastors that are like, they own airplanes, they own, you know, houses worth tens, you know, like huge amounts of money. One of them had an airplane leasing company. This is not Obama. This is like a bunch of Republicans who are worried about, they're traditional Republicans worried about fiscal responsibility. Why are these pastors getting all of their tax exemptions? Why are their businesses why is an airplane leasing company? Why is a massive private, why, why is this tax exempt? They started to investigate. And this is a Republican committee that did this, wow. you know, in the sort of spirit of, you know, the you know, former, I guess, conservative Republican, you know, uh, uh, out of a concern for fiscal responsibility. And they got so much blowback that they kind of, and Paula White was, at the time, I think she was with her ex-husband, Randy White. They had a, a, a church called Without Walls. And, and they got so much blowback for doing this uh, that they sort of backed off and said, well, we are, encourage you to self-monitor. Well, let's see how, how well that's going. Yeah, yeah, but, um, but that was like a Republican initiative. So all of this sort of talk about how Obama's against the churches, it's absolutely nonsense. Yeah. I think Jerry Falwell was self-monitoring from the no, corner I mean, of the room. Ah, ah, I went there. 
Yeah, that's a bad. Well, there's the scandals happen over and over and over. But the funny thing is, you know, they happen and, 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 and it doesn't really, I mean, have any effect on the movement whatsoever. I'm, I'm sure there's a certain amount of hand-wringing going on within uh, Liberty University. But, you know, the movement doesn't depend on a particular leader. Um, there's like a kind of leadership cadre, but it shifts all the time. And I think it's actually sort of the um, the uh, the uh, uh, you know the the organizations that have are actually more fixed. I mean, this is the reason why the movement is so powerful and has some staying powers because it's very complex and it consists of sort of a variety of organizations. But again, it represents a minority of the country. It's like a sort of radicalized minority, and I think it represents you know, um, uh, like a diminishing uh, percentage of the country. But it's really all about, you know, I went to this Evangelicals for, for Trump event um, not too long ago. And one of the speakers there, Johnny Moore, he said, we need to become evangelists for the vote. And I think that that's really true for um, those of us who, who don't want to see Trump get a second term too. Don't just, don't just vote yourself. Hold your, you know, members of your family and your inner circle um, available, to, uh, you know, accountable to vote, volunteer to babysit somebody who might have trouble getting to the polls or make sure everybody's got all of their sort of vote and mailing stuff in order as early as possible. Yeah. I, the, I want Paula White jailed because she ruined the band journey for me because she's married to Jonathan Cain. <laughs> he wore her face. And I, I believe they have some really good songs, right? Well, they, they had, I can't listen to it anymore without thinking about it. I know. Don't stop believing. I had to. I had to give up the believing, man. Uh, no, I kid. She's so great because she opens her mouth and the wildest stuff comes out. You know, yeah. wasn't she the one who talked about like I don't know, satanic pregnancies or something like this? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. like yeah. and and yeah, it's just it's just it's just astounding what people eat up and buy, and and you know Trump the whole time he's just sitting there going these guys are suckers man we're just gonna play them right in the ground. No, he's um, looking at them like they're his best friends because they put him in office, and if he maintains yeah. control, it'll be because of their efforts. Yeah. It's going to be really scary, and I hope Christians wake up to this, man. Uh, I mean, he will be ordained king, and it won't be a cool king. Like he's he's going to go after everybody when he's done, and he's going to need money for all the for all the debt we're in for bailing out the coronavirus and the crashed economy. He'll pro- I I wouldn't put it past him to start taxing churches. I seriously would not put it past the dude. Because um, I mean, he's just he's Hitler. You just look at Hitler. Hitler yeah, I, don't think would do that. I think he's going to continue to give them what they want. I really, really? do because yeah. they put him in office and he knows it. He under- but he doesn't have to get their vote again. But he, he understands that transactional thing. Look, he's, he's not going to, um, you know, he's not all powerful. You know, he, he will be he people to, um, you no, know, he'll go. He'll go for. He'll keep. De- he'll keep deconstructing the government like he has quietly, and then he'll just. He'll just have people around him uh, that are willing to give up the government, and and he already. He already's building that infrastructure now. Well, if you, if want you look to. at theocracies around the globe, um, once these dictators take power, they often do maintain their alliances do they? with hyper-conservative religious leaders. I mean, you know, it happens throughout the Middle East. It's happening in Turkey, yeah. at Russia. I mean, it just that it's sort of. You know, if you look at um, over time, you, and, and it didn't matter what the leaders believed themselves. I'm thinking about um, Spain. Franco was, uh, you know, uh, famously an atheist, 
Um, and yet he allied with uh, hyper, you know, religious conservatives in his country to consolidate, you know, power. Um, thinking about uh, Mussolini, yeah, Mussolini, you know, yeah. same yeah. same story, same thing, yeah, yeah, same old same old story. And then, yeah, uh, anything more we should know about your great book in this discussion we've had oh. today? Well, um, the book is titled "The Power Worshippers Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism." And we've covered a lot. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you today. It's been a pleasure to speak with you today, aside from the fact that you've scared the crap out of me and I'll probably have nightmares for the next 60 days. Uh, and, and who knows, it's probably another 30 after that before we know who won the election. But, no, it's a, it's a wonderful book. Yeah, go check this out, guys. The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism uh, by Catherine Stewart. Uh, guys, you really need to get registered to vote. You need to go out and vote. Uh, get your early mail-in ballots now and vote. If you're a Christian, please read these books, some of the ones we featured on the show. Realize the, the Constitution is up for grabs. You have a republic as long as you can keep it, according to Ben Franklin. And it, what's really important is to identify that there is a sickness within the all of these groups, whether they're white people or whether they're white religion. And, and these people want to subjugate people, whether they're men, women, women, LGBTQ. They, they want to pretty much burn the Constitution to the ground. They want power, ultimate power. And uh, if you think Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, is angry now, they're probably going to be more angry because this is a racist agenda to make those people's lives even more a living hell. And and we've all got to rise and stop this because if we don't all bring together and kumbaya, you know, there's a lot of people that talk about civil war and crap. These, these people are just going to go back in their little racist closets. I know these people. I unfriended most of them, was friends with them for years. Uh, they're just going to go back in their racist closets. They're going to, you know, throw some sling around on social media. You might have a couple nut jobs uh, firing guns off. But for the most part, they're just going to go back to their thing. Um, you know, I, I do want to kick back to one thing that, that you identified for me. I, I, used to, I had all those friends that were coming out of the closet that had resentment with PC. And I couldn't figure out what it was. I'm like, what, what is your deal with PC? Like, you really have a fucking, you can't just be polite to people. I mean, maybe you think racist thoughts in your head, but just be polite. But you talked about the resentment of that. And what I didn't realize is those people resented not being able to say their hate out loud. Well, the, the politics of resentment is so important to this movement. How do you get a large number of people to support a, a really reactionary agenda that's ultimately going to hurt most of their them in their pocketbooks is you, you feed that resentment and you feed that sense of persecution. And that persecution narrative is, is too important to the movement and uh, to discard just because um, most of the sort of forms of persecution they're identifying are, you know, ir completely irrelevant to their lives or, or simply not true. Um, and I think, you know, you get to this point where this is like a movement that's a political movement and it's exploiting religion for political purposes. It's not a religion. It's a political movement. And I think that, you know, sometimes when we speak about these things, you know, we could be, be perceived as being speaking about religion, but what we're really talking about is a political movement and an anti-democratic movement that is exploiting um, people and exploiting religion um, in order to consolidate authoritarian power. And that's a, a dangerous, dangerous situation. And how my brothers and sisters and Christians recognize that, especially the racist element, um, because uh, 
Man, we can't get this guy elected again. Thank you for being on the show, Catherine. We certainly appreciate you uh, coming and spending your time and your and your wonderful knowledge that has enlightened us. And, and uh, I encourage everyone to go out and grab the book. Uh, you can go to Amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Chris Voss. You can go to the CBPN. You can go to YouTube.com forward slash Chris Voss. Uh, Catherine, do you want to uh, give us your plugs and websites people can look you up on? Sure. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Kath S. Stewart. There are two S's there. Uh, my website is katherinestewart.me. And um, you can always look at my Amazon page and, um, and uh, learn more about the book. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you so much. Do you want to plug your earlier book that you wrote in? Sure. Um, in 2012, I uh, wrote a book just for back to school and <laughs> time for back to school. Um, my book is called The Good News Club inside, um, uh, sorry, uh, the Christian right stealth assault on America's children. And it's about efforts by the religious right to infiltrate and undermine public education in America. Check that out as well, guys. Brilliant thinker. Uh, thanks for tuning in to my audience and be safe. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.